Hello, everybody. My name is Alex Marks, and this is Young History, a podcast about the history of every single country in the world, but in reverse order. So we start with the least populated countries and work our way up to the countries that are the most populated ones in the entire world. So with that, we actually skipped the Vatican City. Now, I did that because I figured the Vatican City would be very encapsulated into the history of Italy, which was the first episode I did. But as I got up the chain, I realized that San Marino was so close in order to, you know, to start me doing Italy, San Marino is so small that it's only the fifth smallest country in the world by population. So I thought I might as well do the Vatican with it because there's some nuances to the Vatican that are very interesting. And there's a lot of things I want to get into with doing the Vatican. So we're going to do both San Marino and the Vatican today. Both of these countries are very unique. Both of these countries have a lot of different things about them that you don't see in other countries. And with that, let's learn some history today, the Vatican City and San Marino. My name is Alex Marks. This is the Young History Podcast, and I hope you all enjoy. The origins of San Marino start very long time ago, not before the ADs. Thankfully, we're not going all the way back to BC with this, but we do see it starting around 301 AD with a man named Saint Marinello. Now, he was escaping persecution from an, a Roman emperor named Diocletian, who, as we know, was one of the ones that helped reunite Rome after uh, falling out because of the Gauls in the West. He splits Rome, the Roman Empire, I mean, into four major sections, which eventually leads to Constantinople and the fall of Western Rome. But during this time, Diocletian was actually persecuting Christians, and St. Marinello was a Christian living in Dalmatia, and the persecution was becoming very strong. It was starting to really breathe down his neck, and it was getting really close to him from the emperor. So he actually migrated over to Rimini, which is on the Italian peninsula, very close to where San Marino is today. And the story goes that when he got there, he was able to calm down for a little bit. He was with Christians as well. Other Christians left with him. They were other people being persecuted, every single one of them Christian, him a Christian. And they get to Rimini. When they're at Rimini, it is alleged that either a woman or multiple women came up to St. Marinella and confused him for the husband that left them with a child. So these women would like beg him to stay or ask for money. This is all alleged and very up in the air. This is one of the few facts about San Marino that's not really corroborated well. But apparently this happens and that's the reason he flees from Rimini into St. Marino or into Mount Titano which becomes San Marino. It's a mountain only a few kilometers west of where the city of Rimini is and he begins building a monastery on this mountain hill and it ends up becoming very big for Christians. Now, the thing with this monastery is that it doesn't just attract the people that came with him, it actually attracts a lot of Christians who are starting to understand over the next few decades that okay, this is a place I can escape to. This is a monastery in the center of, you know, this mountain. It's a little bit of distance from Rome. It's next to Rimini. There wasn't a lot going on with the lands that was like as dangerous as like being next to Rome and where the emperor stayed and all that. So, it actually attracted a lot of Christians, but the thing was, this mountain that they built on actually belonged to someone. Now, her name was Lady Felicita, and she, of course, was not very cool with the idea of people kind of just walking up to her mountain, claiming it's theirs, and building it, building up on it, and building a city there. So, 
discussions happen between her and St. Marinello, and tensions are kind of high. They don't really know how to solve the problem because St. Marinello and them aren't leaving. They already are getting this sense of independence from anyone, Dalmatia, Italy, and Romini. They all feel separate from all these you know, factions and countries and places. But, you know, Lady Felicita also is going to give up the land for no reason. But this changes when eventually, to one of her meetings, she brings her sick son to these Christians at this monastery because she's hoping that they can help him. It's uh, it's gotten to a point where her son was very sick and it was getting to a point where it was very scary for her. It was scary for the boy. So she wanted to bring her, bring this bring her son anywhere she could to see if she can get him some help. And the person who would help is St. Marinello because allegedly he had powers of healing, which according to historians is much more likely that he was able to recognize whatever sickness the little boy had and was able to give a more like a home remedy to fix it. Like a, it was said that maybe the boy had a high fever, so he just put a cold cloth on the boy's head or he you know, helped convince the boy that there was a way through this and the one that is a little more nuanced is the idea that Marinello was smart enough to know that okay I'm not a healer but if I convince people so deeply in their psyche that I am a healer they're gonna feel the effects of healing quote-unquote so that's a belief too is that he was so adamant that he was a healer and that when he touched the boy he'd be healed that the boy and Lady Felicita may have convinced himself that oh like we did my son got healed and I got healed by this you know, Christian medic, whatever. And, you know, he made a lot of money doing this too. And because of this, the fact that he quote unquote heals Lady Felicita's boy is she gives up the she gives up the land. That part of the land where the which was Mount Titano, which is where San Marino was built, she let it go. She said, Alright, listen, it's yours. Thank you for saving my kid. I'm out of here. She goes back to Romini, which is where, you know, she hailed from and she let it be. They didn't have much interaction and for now uh, San Marino would be left alone, and this would go on for a while because San Marino then declares himself a republic. But the thing with this was Rome was already huge. By this point, this is in the ADs. Rome is super far into its empire. As I said, it's with Diocletian that Saint Marinello actually runs away from Dalmatia. By this point, Rome has conquered the entire Mediterranean. They're up into Britain. They've established Londinium up there. They've gone all the way east to Turkey, they're west to the Iberian Peninsula, they're south in North Africa, they're everywhere. So this tiny little mountain in Italy, in the Italian Peninsula, wasn't recognized by them. They didn't like assume that there was anyone who had their own village or republic or anything within their empire because they assumed they controlled it all, especially in Italy, which is where they started their conquering hundreds of years before. So the Romans didn't even realize that this republic existed. That's why it was completely unacknowledged, which is great on the part of St. Marinello because you wouldn't want them to know you were there because the Romans would have just came and crushed you and you would have been able to do nothing about it. But this little mountain was just, you know, talked about in whispers. It was gossiped about here and there very rarely. And it was pretty much unknown that it existed, barring the few Christians that escaped there for refuge. And it wasn't long after this that Marinello would die. And right before his death, he would have very famous last words, which were, I leave you free from both men. Which, of course, is a little bit of a, you know, vague way to go out. But what is believed by this is that both men is referring to the Pope and the Roman Empire. I leave you, my San Samaritanese people. Not San Marinese, but Sam Marinese, double M. I leave the Samaritanese people free from both the Emperor of Rome 
and the Pope. So you get to be what you want, do what you want to do. That's like my gift to you as people. That's my last bit of advice. Before I pass, that was St. Marinello. So after this, he's died. There's different successions with who's in charge. And that doesn't last too long because by 750 AD, the Lombards have come. The Lombards have fully come into the Italian peninsula. They take over the land that encapsulates San Marino. And... They completely take over. But the thing is, like, they realized that San Marino kind of claimed themselves as a republic. They claimed themselves as their own republic since the time of St. Marinello. And they didn't, you know, see the see a reason to mess with them. They kind of just left them alone in their mountain. They let them be. So despite on, like, a legal document, it would appear that Saint, the, the entire land, which the Lombards controlled, would include San Marino. I keep wanting to say San Marinello, so that's my the bobble in my head, but San Marino would be entirely encapsulated by the Lombards, but they wouldn't really, you know, they wouldn't really do anything there. They wouldn't really take over. They wouldn't really put influence onto them and they would just kind of leave them alone. So this is another time where San Marino is left alone very luckily. And it isn't until the late 900s and 1200s that they end up becoming a commune from a state under the Lombards, which is kind of like a, it's kind of like a compact of free association of sorts. Like we see with, uh, like we saw with Nauru and different countries in the Pacific, it is pretty much that, like, you're a city-state. You get to control your own government. You get to rule your own people. You elect your own politicians. But there is that, like, over-the-top-of-your-head empire of the Lombards that is in control of you. So this wasn't rare at the time. As we know, cities of all sorts, especially in Italy, were their own city-states, Rome, Venice, Napoli, and as we've mentioned today, Romini. There's just a lot of, like, little cities that kind of govern their own way and being a city-state wasn't rare at all the time so that's how that goes and once they get this commune it is when they decide to establish their own kind of unique system which is called the captain's regent which is every six months two new rulers are elected it kind of like resembles the way the rome do their two consuls they're elected by the people and they only serve six months they serve actually less than a year they serve six months each and then they're replaced they're voted out they get swapped it's just constantly bring new perspective constantly limit corruption things like that and you know despite having this pretty good system being left alone they weren't left alone by everybody so even though lady felicita from years before hundreds of years before at this point was um, of Romini, a new Romini family called the Malatesta family, weren't as cool with this idea of a random republic just claiming that they were independent only a few kilometers away from the city. So they do try and attack San Marino and take it over. This doesn't work both because of the strategic location that San Marino is on, which is mostly on this giant mountain at the time, and then their giant monastery they have is pretty much a castle surrounded by walls. So it wasn't easy to get into, especially by a small family that had... um, only so many soldiers working for them. So they end up giving it up. Now, in the late 1200s is where things get interesting. This is where things start to get involved with the Pope. Now, after they established the Captain's Regency, which is the thing where they elect two Captain's Regents every six months, this kind of gained the attention of the Papal States a little bit. They went, okay, so what's what's this little republic over here doing? And they didn't even see republic. They would say, like, what's this town doing? Like, Why are they electing their own? Okay, we're not going to worry about it. Come 1294, the Pope and the Papal States send over a thing that says, hey, you're in our land. Like You you got to pay taxes just like everyone else does. And San Marino went, well, no, actually, we don't because we're a republic. Like We're independent, so you can't tax us. You can't tax other countries. Why would you tax us? And despite 
the the papal states having their own kind of repertoire of arms and stuff, they actually don't decide to go to war. And when they, when San Marino sues over this, they just go to court. They just go to court. And when they go to court, judge rules in favor of San Marino. And with this, the Pope goes, you know, they're a small town. The taxes wouldn't have helped us that much anyways. I don't care. We're leaving it alone. And that's that. San Marino's once again left alone, but this time for 168 years. And we get from 1294 up until 1462. And this is when they actually get into good terms with the, pa- the Papal States. So near San Marino is Romini. As I said, and in Romini, a kind of religious rebellion broke out where people were starting to resist the Catholic Church. And... They were starting to have little riots, and there was violence. And San Marino actually stepped in on behalf of the Papal States to stop this. And for this, of course, the Papal States rewarded them. So they get on good terms with each other, and this is kind of when we see the start of, okay, listen, like there's no reason for us to have any problems. You could just be San Marino, and we'll just be Italy, and we'll be the Catholic Pope, whatever. They're in a good, they're in a good place. And with them assisting the, the Pope bit, he actually gives some land to them, just like little areas just outside the mountain. And the fact that this land starts to expand convinces other people in the area next to Romini to actually join San Marino. Now, these all join the Republic completely voluntarily. These lands are Chiesa Nueva, Fiorentino, Monte Giardo, Faitano, and Saravael. All of these come together to form San Marino into the current size that it is today. Now, the next major interaction would come in 1503 when Cesare Borgia would actually march his troops into San Marino and take over. Now, Cesare was trying to, like, lay his claim to all of Rome and to the throne, all things like that. And part of it was conquering as much of Italy as he could, which included San Marino. Now, they conquer it in 1503, as I said, but once Cesare Borgia dies, you know, they... To then give up. It's the same as when, it's the same as when, in Rome, the western half like started to fall because the troops just didn't have the same motivation to fight because they weren't the same Rome that benefited from the empire growing. They were just Roman soldiers. So when push came to shove, they kind of just laid down their arms and left. The same thing happened here. Cesare Borgia, who was the only reason they took over took over San Marino, dies. They just leave. They gave up, and now San Marino's left again, left alone once again. Now. This doesn't last long. This only lasts until 1600 when they draft their constitution. Drafting a constitution is a thing that countries do. It's a thing that you do when you're trying to establish who you are as a country. You're trying to establish your rules, your government, all that. And this makes it a lot easier for them to be recognized as a country, as a republic, because now they have a set rules. Now they have a form of government. Now they are very much mirroring what every other country has. So the constitution was made in 1600. And by 1631, the Pope would actually recognize San Marino as independent that year in 1631. However, about 100 years later, in 1739, Pope Benedict XIV would actually try to take over the San Marino. He didn't, rec- he didn't agree with what his previous Pope said that they're independent. He thought that everyone within the land that was once the Papal States should be united. And he says, okay, no, we're not doing this. I'm going to take you over. And... This became a very public issue. A lot of people started to pick up on this, different countries around the world. And Europe actually started to support San Marino. They like said in writing their backing was with San Marino over the Pope on this because they didn't see a reason for the Pope to do it. They just saw this country or this republic as 
you know, as their own thing and just wanted to live and be left alone. And, you know, Europe kind of empathized with that. So most European countries said to the Pope, like, hey, you probably shouldn't do this because we don't support you. And the Pope said, okay, and didn't want to, you know, deal with what would have happened if he did invade the land. So he lets, actually, he did invade it, but instead of keeping the land, he lets the land go. And once again, San Marino is independent. But they have a very close scare with a very famous man from France named Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, on his great expansion of the French Empire after the French Revolution and his coup d'etat to become leader of France, eventually emperor, he was expanding France in all directions, west into the Iberian Peninsula and now east into the northern parts of Italy, which would also be the central part near San Marino. Napoleon got to this land and he recognized that this was the republic everyone was talking about that was very individual and was claiming to be separate. And we saw this also with um, Napoleon and Andorra is he didn't really want to pick this fight. He didn't want to mess with these small guys because he had like a bit of a small, like a bit of a soft spot for these independent countries that were trying their best just to be, you know, be themselves and be alive. So they do that and they're getting done. And as Napoleon comes to here, he pretty much just leaves them alone. And he even offers them an expansion. Like instead of just leaving them alone, he actually kind of likes what San Marino is doing. So he goes, hey, do you want me to like expand your borders all the way to the Adri Adriatic Sea? Which would have pushed Romini out of existence. It would have just inco inc incorporated all Romini into San Marino. But, you know, San Marino is pretty humble. They go, no, you know, we've got our land. We're happy. Like, thank you. Just thank you for leaving us alone. Thank you for not conquering us. And, you know, that's that. They leave it at that. And, of course, as Napoleon falls, the land rescinds back. And after, you know, the Austrians, the Spanish, and the French have all taken different lands within Italy, this begins the unification effort because, as we said with Italy, when Napoleon came in, he introduced a lot of, like, the French revolutionary ideas and a sense of national pride, which came to the Italians, which leads to Italian unification. Now, right before unification, something else happened in San Marino. So, the people of Rome actually kicked out Pope Pius IX, and they established a republic, and the republic was defended by a very famous Italian named Giuseppe Garibaldi. But, of course, the fact that when you overthrow Rome, you're challenging the Pope, you're challenging a lot of things there. France and Austria stepped in, and they were starting to align their forces and starting to march down Italy, getting ready to challenge Giuseppe and anyone else that was there. So, as they marched, Garibaldi and his men fleed from Rome. The place they fled to was to San Marino, and San Marino accepted them with open arms. They let them take refuge and hide there. And this was actually huge, 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 huge for their history because in later years, once Garibaldi would start conquering the south and Mazzini and Victor Emmanuel would start conquering the north and Italy would end up being completely unified, Garibaldi would pretty much say, like, all right, well, I owe you one. Like, I, I'm not going to conquer you. You're not going to be part of Italy. You're your own country because, like, you, you helped me out. And it was purely like an I owe you one. The reason San Marino exists and wasn't just, like, scooped up by Italy because... Garibaldi and like Giuseppe Garibaldi and everyone else involved definitely had the forces to take over little San Marino literally wouldn't have been a problem but it was just out of respect of hey you did me a solid and now I'm gonna do you one you're independent we're Italy we're good and after that the conversations start to break into all right well like let's figure this out how we can like coexist together because Victor Emmanuel II was like all right well like I I want to have good relations with you guys so let's figure this out However, this would go, like, fine overall. It's just that 
you know, they, San Marino is too small to have a real military. So the only like, like kind of caveat to like them being independent is that like, it's the same as the U S with, uh, Palau is that, Hey, like you are totally independent, but like it is our military that protects you. So you got to cooperate with us. So like, just, just keep the borders open. Like, let's, let's figure this out together. That's what Victor Emmanuel pretty much says there. This is Victor Emmanuel the second. So they established pretty good ties. They established that if war were to break out, San Marino would be, would be protected by Italy. And that goes well for a while until World War II breaks out. Now, Mussolini never tries to actually conquer the land. He actually looks to take over other parts of the Mediterranean, like Albania, places like that. And this goes on for the entirety of the war. San Marino was able to negotiate pretty well with both sides. You know, they they had good communication with the Germans to say, like, hey, like, we'll... Well, this is actually the thing with them, is they do a really good job of handling the war. They do a really good job of handling, like, what's going on with fascism and all that. So, after they've already got, you know, they're on good terms with Victor Emmanuel, they're on good terms with this and that, they're dealing with Germany and fascist Italy, because Mussolini is in power. He doesn't want to take over San Marino, but his forces are near. He's invading a lot of the lands nearby. He's crushing any rebellions. And the Germans are coming from the north, trying to raid into Italy to win the war. San Marino had good negotiations with both, so they would avoid being raided. They would avoid being attacked. However, under the nose of both of them, a lot of people were being refuged into San Marino's giant castle and different lands by the people just to save lives, because people that were being destroyed by the war needed somewhere to go especially Jewish people. Now, of course, San Marino is very Christian. However, they felt they felt they had to do the right thing, which was to harbor these people that were, you know, now being attacked by a huge amount of Europe. So a lot of Jews were let into San Marino. They were saved for a very long time. They were protected during the war. And with this, they still, despite having, you know, all these people in refuge behind them, the leaders of San Marino, the captain regents, would discuss with Germany and say, hey, no, no, we're neutral, like, just do what you have to do, let us know how we can cooperate, blah, 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 despite having people standing behind him that were, you know, Jewish being protected. So they did it right from under their nose, both under the nose of fascist Italy and under the nose of Germany. And the war eventually ends, and San Marino was able to stay neutral the whole time. It's in post-war that, you know, different negotiations are happening with parts of San Marino and all this, we see like a little shift politically. San Marino actually has a lot of communism. They're actually one of the first countries to fall to communism technically. And they're also one of the fall to fascism as like Mussolini was getting into power. But, you know, different elections saw the captain regents both become fully communist for a time. And this goes on for quite a while because, you know, as World War II built up happened and afterwards there was like quite a time where you know world quite a time where um i'm sorry where communism was like taking over quite a bit so there ended up being a constitution crisis later in 1957 after the war was well over which was different levels of government were kind of being occupied by communists and there was hope that you know, the communists would be able to stall different parts of government so that the captain's regent couldn't be re- like, couldn't be switched because, as we know, they f- switch out every six months. And with this, the communists would have likely lost this election. So with that, they actually want to slow this down, and they stop it for a while. But, you know, this doesn't 
this doesn't last long. Eventually, the people figure it out. Eventually, a few election cycles lead to the communists being flushed out as communism kind of fades away from Western Europe in general. It fades away from San Marino. But that's not the end of San Marino's kind of weirdness. Is <coughs> When it comes to violent crimes, especially in the later half of the 20th century and the early 21st century up through 2014 there isn't a lot of like violent crime in San Marino like the odds of someone getting like shot or you know bank robberies things like that they're pretty low rare in some of the cases they're like impossible to like they just didn't happen for sets of years but white collar crime was quite the issue now a lot of people were using San Marino's like lenient tax laws to funnel in billions of British pounds in and out of the country there was a lot of stuff there that was very weird and of course it was eventually exposed and caught and people were avoiding taxes and once this was found out different you know monetary funds were able to track across Europe and find about 15 about 1500 people who were doing this through San Marino and you know they were arrested these tax dodgers either had to pay or they were going to jail all these things but you know the amount ended up being really huge for this and because of this, like, all this that was caught through San Marino, the, there was international pressure for San Marino to kind of, like, tighten up its laws. And they would, but there would also be, you know, separate crimes that were going on. That would be with a very ma- mafia kind of related thing. There's actually a man named Frank Sinatra, which is, uh, it's, it's Francisco Sinatra, which in Italian would be Frank. Or, like, in English, Francisco would be Frank. And... He was famous for giving out loans to entrepreneurs who wanted to start businesses, and if they didn't pay the loan back, you know, he'd mug them in the streets, he'd beat them up, he'd hold them at gunpoint, threaten their family. And the way that he, like, the loan that he gave was so big that you, like, likely couldn't pay it back in the time frame he gave. So it was a very shady business. Eventually, he would go to the police, he would be, like, reported to the police, and eventually they'd be able, to be able to find a way to catch him, stopping that. But a much more recent thing has been the environmental crime in San Marino, which is still allegedly going on in a way today, but we know it was going on through parts of the early 2000s, which was the waste management industry. The waste management industry was industry was infiltrated by different parts of the mafia, and they would take payments in order to dispose anything people needed you to get rid of. Like, the best way to get rid of something without anyone seeing it is to, you know, kind of flush it away, and you put it down the sewer, and no one's going to, like, you know, no one's going to just, like, see that happening. No one's, it's not like, you know, hiding something under a desk or trying to like put something somewhere in your house you take it to like the waste management people and they like you know send it down the sewers and they get rid of this whole thing like it's gonna be very hard to find so people were getting rid of quote-unquote waste which ranged from you know cheating husbands or wives hiding pictures and evidence of their cheating they would wash this away so that was like it was like clean hands like there's no way to trace it back to them it doesn't look it's just gone to you know things like waste being you know bodies of people that were killed people that you know committed murder would pay off the mafia to hide the body and they would you know they'd send it down the sewer or they'd crush it up in the waste factory all these things just to kind of get it away and of course the cheapest way to do this is like through the sewer which pollutes the environment and that's why they call it environmental crime because they were able to do this illegal activity to hide crimes for payment by negatively affecting the environment which is why different parts of San Marino's like lakes and the ocean near Rimini is like seeing some grossness in the Adriatic Sea because of things like this where, you know, there's a lot of extra dumping from sewage. Now, different things about San Marino now is that it is the fifth smallest land, smallest country in the world by population and by land. We've already done 
uh, three of the other, three of those five, we're going to do the Vatican City later on today. And the Captain Regent still exists. Every six months, they elect two new people. When it comes to their GDP per capita, they're actually one of the 20th highest in the world when it comes to per capita. They're only $800 behind the United States of America because of, you know, how many people are producing and working and all that, you know, in San Marino. But before we get into, like, what their current state is like, I just want to dabble into, like, some one of the major facts that's pretty cool about San Marino is that actually there was a big connection with the U.S., as they were becoming, like, starting to recognize, you know, Francisca, I'm sorry, Victor Emmanuel II, of course, was the one who recognized recognized them in the 1860s. And because of this, you know, they became seen as a country by Europe. But in the Western world, like, west of the Atlantic, they were actually seen as a republic just a little before in 1861 because they actually made Abraham Lincoln an honorary citizen. So they made Abraham Lincoln an honorary citizen after he acknowledged the fact that this republic despite being small, was still one of, like, great history, a lot of pride. I don't remember the exact quote, but it was all things like that, very Lincoln-esque. And, you know, he sums up everything he says, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, all right, well, this is this is San Marino. Like, it's a, it's a republic. It's an independent country. We recognize it. So it got recognized in the West in 1861, just a year before it got recognized by Victor Emmanuel II in 1862. That's kind of, like, the fun fact for San Marino for me. Now, when it comes to the present, San Marino actually competes in a separate thing from the Olympics. So they've been in the Olympics, but have gotten crushed. They've never won a single medal in the actual Olympics. But they helped form the Olympics for European microstates, um, countries like Andorra, Monaco, and Liechtenstein can compete with um, San Marino in these events and still qualify for Olympic gold without having to compete against you know the greatest countries in the world at these Olympics because it's, it's not fair. I mean, when you're China or the U.S. and you're hundreds of millions of people strong compared to San Marino, which is, you know, less than 100,000, less than 50,000 people in the entire country, it's like, wh- what can you do? So that is um, that is pretty much where we get to with San Marino. The current state is they still have a lot of traditions. There's different parades every year. They're in a pretty good state. Their relations are great with Italy. They're, the military of Italy protects San Marino, but there's no real bad blood with anyone. San Marino doesn't have like that like lengthy of a history of like you know problems with anyone. So for now, like San Marino is doing pretty good for itself. The only issue is they do need to figure out you know what levels of their government is still being affected at all by the you know the mafia that infiltrated the waste management and sewer system and things like that. But there's, there's corruption in every government in the world, no matter what anyone says. So trying to figure that out is, is one of their last problems. Now, of course, I always like to kind of finish up a country just with, like, my takeaways and, like, my little, like, what lesson can you learn from kind of learning about San Marino. And with them, I, I pull a simple one. It's just stay true. San Marino has been a republic. In its eyes, since 301 A.D., it's one of the oldest republics in the world. If we go up based on that, since 300, that's a long time ago. They faced different times where they may have been conquered, but never once did they recognize. Never once did they bend the knee. They never conceded to whoever was taking them over. They never let someone just like say that for the sake of, oh, you know, like it's gonna be easy for us. We could avoid conflict. No, they stood up. They said, "This is who I am," and they were proud of it. So my lesson that I take from San Marino that I'll keep in my head is whatever you believe is right, if you believe 
whatever it is about yourself, about the world, about whatever it is that you do. If you feel in your heart that it is right, don't let anyone tell you anything about it. Don't let anyone stop you because what, for what reason do they have to do that? So that's my little takeaway from San Marino. That's my little takeaway from this. And, you know, with that, I'm going to take a break here for a moment. And then we're going to wrap this episode up with the history of the Vatican City. We're going to brush over that pretty quickly. We're going to see what we can do there. And then we're going to, you know, just roll and see how it goes. So thank you for listening to this portion. We're going to take a little break now and we're going to get into the history of the Vatican City. So it's impossible to acknowledge the history of the Vatican City without, of course, acknowledging Jesus Christ, who starts the Christian religion and, of course, eventually is part of the writing of the Bible, the Old Testament, which eventually takes over the entire world and Christianity becomes the biggest religion in the world. So that happens. And one of the famous saints that goes into the area of Rome is St. Peter. Now, once he dies we see the building of the old St. Peter's Basilica, which was around the 400s AD. It's built on top of, you know, where St. Peter dies and is buried, and it becomes a very big pilgrimage site for Christians. Now, the original basilica was abandoned in the 1500s, in 1505, actually, because, you know, there was just change coming, and with Michelangelo around and these other artists, they wanted to do a change. So we see the building of the current St. Peter's Basilica, which is the absolute monolith that it is today, built throughout the 1500s and early 1600s, and it ends up becoming the largest church in the entire world, what it is today. Now, the Vatican actually starts as just a bunch of walls built around a hill in the 300s AD, and this ends up being very important. Remember that the Vatican has walls, okay? So, Rome falls, Romulus Augustulus is the last emperor, as we know, the first the first you know, the founder of Rome was Romulus. The person who ended with ended Western Rome's rule was another man named Romulus. This one, Romulus Augustulus. He's deposed, and then the bishops of that lived in Rome started to form into positions that allowed them to get into different levels of government around Rome and around their area. Eventually, they would get to the point where they have this figure that can represent both the head of religion and the head of the government, which is the Pope. So, because of this, we see the starting of the Pope, and within a few centuries, the Papal States start in 754 AD. Now, the Popes were going to control a huge chunk of central Italy, that's what we call the Papal States, and they wanted Rome to be their capital, they saw it as their capital, but a lot of wars were going on at the time. Now, the Austrians were in wars with the France, the Valois versus the Habsburgs, and because of wars like this, called the Italian Wars, because of conquering the South from different people from Spain, just the entirety of Europe wanted a chunk of the Italian peninsula. And because of that, Italy was an absolute jigsaw puzzle, except for in the center from Rome, pretty much to Rimini, which is right next to San Marino, as we said, is all this central state called the Papal States, which is led by the Catholic Church and Rome. Now, after a few centuries go by, the Kingdom of Sardinia has gotten through the conquering of Napoleon, they've seen all the wars between the Habsburgs and the French, and the Spanish and the French, and the Austrians and the French, and the Austrians and the Spanish, 
all these wars go on and on, and Italy is seen as one of the greater battlegrounds in the world because it's just constantly being invaded. And the Kingdom of Sardinia is one of the big ones that starts this, you know, national pride with Mazzini, with uh, Benzo Camillo, with Victor Emmanuel II, and in the south of Italy with uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi. Now, they begin to unify the country. Different parts are conquered at different times. This is the 1800s. Italy is beginning to be unified into, well, the Italian peninsula is beginning to be unified into what we know today as Italy. So, with that, we see the issue where they've conquered all of Italy except for Rome. Now, they're in Rome. They've infiltrated Rome, and they're very clear about, hey, yo, Pope, like, come on. Come out here. Let's figure this out. You'll acknowledge us. Let's get this done. We exist. We're Italy. And the Pope now says, okay, you guys don't exist. I don't acknowledge you. The kingdom of Italy does not exist. It's not a real thing. It's all made up. The Pope doesn't recognize it. When the Pope doesn't recognize something, that means it's seen as like, it's not seen as important. It's not seen as like truly real by the rest of Europe, at least Catholic Europe. And they also simultaneously claimed the Pope claimed, I mean, that he was a prisoner of the kingdom of Italy. So he claimed that the kingdom of Italy isn't recognized and doesn't exist, but also claimed he was a prisoner of the kingdom of Italy. Right. Now, following this, the Pope has, goes, okay, listen, there's no way they're going to be this persistent. So this is the late 1800s, around the 60s, uh, 1860s, we see this. And the Pope goes, all right, listen, I'm just going to wait it out. I'm going to wait here. Eventually, these kings will leave. Eventually, you know, Italy will go back to the way it was. I'll be fine. So after 60 years and six different popes rule, <coughs> ruling and, <coughs> and claiming that they were prisoners, still the people who were in charge of Italy were like, all right, listen, like you got to come down and acknowledge us because this is ridiculous. And this eventually leads to an issue with Mussolini coming in. So now Mussolini, that's been 60 years since the 1860s, so we're in the late, the late 1920s. Mussolini's got power by 1929. And he's sick of hearing what the Pope has to say. The Pope is constantly, like, berating to the people around the Vatican that, oh, you know, I'm a prisoner and the people that are in charge are not good Catholics and blah, 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 blah. Just preaching a lot of things that are, like, undermining the Italian government. So Benito Mussolini is sick of this. So he sends him a treaty. He goes, all right, Pope, listen, I got an answer for you. Sorry, I almost just knocked, off, knocked over my microphone. I talked with my hands. So he sends to him a thing that says, this, all right, listen. You get to keep the Vatican. You get to keep St. Peter's Basilica. You get to be your own separate thing. We're going to give the Vatican City to the Holy See. You will be completely independent from Italy. And we're going to send you a boatload of money for all the time, you know, we've costed each other. And it's just in good faith, okay? Now, in return, you have to acknowledge that we, Italy, first off, exist. And second off, you have to acknowledge that if anything goes on politically or war-wise, you will stay neutral. So no more preaching to the people, no more trying to influence the votes of people in Rome. You shut up, you do your thing in your little city, but you'll be independent and we'll do ours. Okay? Cool. Now, this is agreed upon. The Pope signs this and this is very early 1929. So by February 11th, they are a fully independent country. And there, the Vatican City is given to the Holy See. Now, what that means, the Holy See, ends up being very big. So the Holy See is the name of the throne, pretty much, that the Pope sits on when in charge. It's seen as obviously a very holy, you know, representative thing. The Only the Pope sits upon this throne. It's only when he's in power as the Pope that he can do this. And 
because of the fact that the Vatican was signed, the Vatican City was signed under the control of the Holy See, it's kind of done in a unique way where this chair is kind of like the owner of the Vatican City, and he who sits on it is like the one who makes the decisions for the chair. It's kind of weird. But, of course, the Holy See represents more than that. Like, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just like this, the throne is very, like, deep with, you know, connections to the Catholic faith and all that. So, this actually causes a lot of, like, <laughs> craziness within the Vatican City. So, the Vatican City is actually one of the only six monarchies left on Earth. Absolute monarchies. Those are rare. The reason this is, is because not only does the Vatican have the Pope, but it actually has a king. A king that has complete control of the entire area of the Vatican City. But... Because of this, they're left out of the European Union, and the king has the ability to overrule any decision that is made by anyone in the Vatican City because he is a, oh, he's a true absolute monarch. Now, you're going to be asking, like, I don't really hear about, like, the king of the Vatican City that often. Like, you know, you hear about the Prime Minister of Italy, like, you hear about different things with that, and everyone hears about the Pope in the news somehow, but you don't hear much about the king. That's because the king just happens to also always be the Pope. Now, here's, here's the kicker. The Pope is the one that hires people for the Vatican City for, to work under the Holy See, all that. He appoints cardinals, which go into the legislative branch, which are able to make decisions and have the ability to you know, ask you know, the king what he thinks of things. They're able to question the king. But the thing is, the Pope who appoints the cardinals to check the king, if he doesn't like anything that people say to the king, he'll just, you know, I guess take off his pope hat and put on his king crown and say, yeah, no, you guys don't get to do that. And then go back to being the pope. So anything that is said by anyone, especially these cardinals, can be vetoed by the pope and be, you know, or vetoed by the king, which would be helping the pope because the pope and the king are the same person. So if you're hired by the pope and you do something the king that the pope doesn't like, the king who's also the Pope, can punish you for it. And this goes even crazier, because the biggest issue with this, like, King-Pope weirdness is that the citizenship of the country is incredibly weird. So, in the Vatican City, there aren't really any women. All the bishops and cardinals that work there are men. Obviously, the Pope is a man, and the Pope is also the king, so the king is a man. So, you can't, you know, just reproduce with men. So, there isn't any, like, natural births in the Vatican City. And this goes further because the Vatican City only gives citizenship to people who are either the Pope or work for the Pope. And that's how you get citizenship is once the Pope hires you, the king gives you, he turns around and puts on his king crown and gives you citizenship. Now, if you're ever fired, if you ever quit or anything, quit working for the Pope or fired by the Pope, the Pope then turns around again and he comes back as the king and says, okay, well, now you're not, you're no longer a citizen of this country. Get out. So... It's crazy. So you can't be a citizen unless you work for the Pope. But if the Pope, you know, fires you, then the king, who's also the Pope, takes away your ability to live in the Vatican City as a citizen. It's it's insane. But despite this craziness, the Vatican is very much like a normal country. I mean, it has its own set of laws that it enforces with its own police. It has its own jails for people. It has its own license plate. And just like how Tuvalu has the top domain.tv, they have their own top domain.va. So, despite having some craziness with the things within their government, you know, they are also, they're also, you know, kind of normal in some ways. Now, 
I, I made it short with the Vatican City just they've already done San Marino and Italy, and I just I don't need to get into all the wars that have happened across Italy and the Papal City and all that. I just wanted to hit on what the Vatican was and why it exists as an independent country and how it's, you know, the smallest country in the world. But that's that's the Vatican. That's the Holy See. That's, you know, why it exists as an independent country. And, you know, it's it's a very unique one. It's very unique and weird, as you can see. And, you know, what can you do, really? What, what can we do about that? But it's um, it's not a part of the United Nations because it's not, like, big enough to be recognized. It's not a part of the EU because it's not a democracy. And, you know, despite any issues that come in and out of the Vatican they um they're kind of just there like you know they're a place that sees a lot of visitors every year because of the great you know the decorated walls for Michelangelo St. Peter's Basilica is gorgeous the Vatican itself is very good looking and then people come to visit the Pope on religious pilgrimages and stuff so it's a very popular like incredibly well visited location (coughs) but it's just it's just a very unique history there but um when it comes to the Vatican, I don't have much takeaway except for, you know, there's a lesson about pride in there. It is the Pope is very, cl- very clearly always been prideful, very been, been very prideful that you know the teachings that the Pope tells is right, and that you know taking over the Vatican is like unholy. So there's a there's a way I look at it, which is you know the Pope and the way the Vatican City was formed, and the fact that it's remained independent all these years, kind of teaches me that like. You can be prideful about who you are and what you do. Kind of a similar thing to San Marino where it's like, if you believe something, do it. But the lesson with, you know, the Vatican is that like there's there's a level of stubbornness where it's like you can be stubborn and get what you want. And there's stubborn where you're being ridiculous, which is where the Pope kind of falls. So just kind of try and manage that. You know, there it's okay to be proud of what you do, proud of who you are, proud of what you believe. But there's a level of respect you need to have for the changing world because the world is changing and not all systems are going to be the same forever. So yes, that's my little takeaway with, you know, the Vatican with Rome, with all that. So, you know, that's been these two countries. So all I can really say with that is that I enjoyed making this a lot. I'm glad that I actually did go back and do the Vatican. I just wanted to give it a little bit of attention because I could get into, you know, the ruling of every Pope and all that, but Really, we'd just be here all day, and I've already acknowledged the history of Italy in general, so we're just going to do that. So all I can say now is thank you all so much for watching. Thank you for giving me this time of your day. We recorded for about 45, 47 minutes a day. Got a lot of history, did two countries in one. We've done the entire Italian peninsula now, and now we're going to keep it rolling. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening, and... This was Young History. So from me, Alex Marks, to you all, I hope you have a wonderful day, and thank you for being here. Ciao.